Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. A lot of people really dislike conflict and have a low opinion of it. They're uncomfortable with disagreements at the office, think there's no room for contention at church, worry that fighting with their partner means their relationship is destined to dissolve, and generally feel that heated arguments tear communities apart. My guest today, Ian Leslie, used to be one of these conflict-diverse people. But as he discovered in researching his new book, Conflicted, How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes, conflict not only brings us together, the lack of it, he says, just plain makes us stupider. Ian unpacks some of the myths around difficult conversations, such as the idea they have to be done in a strictly rational, unemotional way to be fruitful, and he offers ways to approach conflict that'll make it more productive, especially remembering to prioritize the relationship above all. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is conflict. All right, Ian Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Very good to be here. So you got a book out called Conflicted, How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes. I'm curious, how did you take a deep dive into the nature of social conflict? Well, you know, I, I think like a lot of things, we can blame Twitter for it. I my, my last book was about curiosity and I was looking for, I guess, another aspect of human nature that I thought hadn't been fully investigated or not not in a really interesting way. And as I was thinking about this, I was both observing and then sometimes participating in really stupid, toxic arguments on Twitter, kind of futile bickering. And again, I think that really is what brought it to mind. I was thinking, there's so much bad argument out there. Why is that? And what can we do about it? And I, I felt it particularly because I'm a pretty conflict-averse person myself. I actually try and stay out of conflict or direct disagreement, or at least I did. But the more I looked into it, the more I thought it, and the more I kind of researched this topic, the more I came to think that actually the problem is not that we have an excess of disagreement. It's actually the opposite. The problem is people like me. <laughs> the, 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 the problem is that people like me see all this uh, the kind of top of the iceberg, the, the the toxic stuff on social media and on on TV, and we think, wow, this just confirms what I thought, which is that disagreement and argument is really something uh, to be avoided, and I'll do anything if I can to do so. But what happens when you do that is you make yourself a little bit stupider, to be blunt. Um, you know, conflict is one. Well, really, the central way, disagreement is kind of the central way in which we do our thinking collaboratively. And it's also something, as, as we'll talk about, that, that I think brings us together, ultimately, even if it puts stress on relationships in the meantime. So we can't do without it. We might pretend, we might think we can, we might try and avoid it. But actually, when we try and avoid it, things just get worse. Yeah, and we'll dig into some of the benefits, the surprising benefits of disagreement and conflict. A lot of it's counterintuitive from popular advice out there. But before we do, I think people do have this general hunch that, okay, through disagreement, you can do sort of the synthesis 
right? Where you can get a new idea. And so that's why we, we go into debates with that idea. It never turns out that way because it becomes acrimonious, like you said, like Twitter's a perfect example. And so we think, okay, to make these debates more productive or these conflicts more to, uh, productive, we got to use some certain techniques and approaches uh, so it, it's more rational. What are some of these popular approaches that people typically take to make sort of corral debate and discussion and conflict? And then why don't they usually work? Well, I mean, one of them is is just to, as, as you indicated, is to become extremely rational, is to say, look, we're going to discuss this. Let's take all the emotion out of it. Let's model our discussion on a kind of Oxford seminar or something, where we just talk about the facts and we talk about reason step by step. And that is really, uh, first of all, it's kind of implausible. I mean, you, you, your emotions are nearly always invested in what you're the point you're arguing to some extent and and much as you try and suppress them they find their way out and people can can sense it right but secondly it's just in a way it's naive because actually your, your emotions help you to do thinking right we we, we think with our emotions as well as our, our faculty of, of reason and this has been demonstrated many times in different ways by cognitive scientists neuroscientists and so on and philosophers talked about this you know David Hume said, reason is the slave of the passions, and, and it should be, because when you're emotional, you, you actually, you drive yourself to come up with better answers and, and, and better arguments. So I, I don't think that taking emotion out of it is, is a wise idea, nor do I think, you know, falling back on a kind of very strict series of rules about going step by step, and, you know, taking one point at a time, all this stuff can be useful in, in, in certain limited contexts. But for the most part, I think you have to go with the grain of human nature rather than against it. All right. So this idea of you can take emotion out of a debate, that will solve it. That's naive and plausible. And actually, you, you make the case, and we can talk about this later as we go through our discussion, it makes discussion or debate kind of impotent, kind of limp. And it takes some yeah. of the, yeah. But then another thing you, you make, a point you make about conflict that people often overlook. Conflict isn't often over facts. It's usually about a relationship. Can you flesh that out a little bit more for us, what you mean by that? Yeah. So if you talk to communication scientists, psychologists who, who, kind of, who study communication, conversation, they, they will tell you, in, in a, and I'm putting it in kind of very simple terms, but there are, there are fundamentally always two channels of communication that are open during any tense conversation, actually any conversation, but they, they become very apparent when there's some sort of conflict at, at stake. One is the content channel, and, and that's the kind of, the content is the thing that we are ostensibly arguing about, right? right? We, we, we're arguing about, you know, who should be running the country or if we're at home, you know, we're arguing about who, who should take the trash out, whatever it is, it's the content of the, of the disagreement. And then there's this other level, which is actually not verbalized most of the time, not articulated, but it's the relationship level. And that's kind of going on underneath, right? Sort of submerged. And that's about what I think about you and what you think about me. Do you like me? Do you respect me? I'm thinking that and you're thinking that, or, or if it's a group of people, we're all thinking that to, to some extent, right? And until that relationship level is settled in some way, then the, the content level is going to be disrupted and it will kind of go off the rails. And often when arguments, disagreements go wrong, 
and the participants are thinking, wow, this is going badly. <laughs> you know, why is he being so crazy? Or why is he being irrational? Why is he not listening to me? Why is he so sullen? Why is she being so sullen? Whatever it is. It's always because there's some unsettled dispute at that kind of invisible relationship level. And you need to get to that first. And this is where, you know, the smart disagreeer, somebody who's skilled at productive disagreement, productive conflict, this is what they're good at. They're very good at being attentive to that relationship level and working out ways to fix it when it needs fixing. Once it's fixed and you have a kind of mutually satisfactory relationship in the conversation, then you can really get into the content level and have a really vigorous disagreement because nobody is feeling slighted, put out, ignored, and so on. So just bearing in mind those those two levels, I think is really important. Yeah. I mean, I think people will see this in relationships, like marital relationships. When couples argue about something like, you know, cleaning out the egg pan after you finish it, it's really not about the egg pan. It's just about a mutual, it's about respect, basically. I mean, I would say more that um, it's about both. And it's always about both at the same time. And you kind of have to keep your eye on on both. And when people have studied this, you know, I hate to be kind of, to, to conform to, or to, to confirm stereotypes, but it is more often than not, the men who are not paying attention to the relationship level of an argument and only focusing on the content. So they'll, they'll, they're the, usually the ones thinking, oh, well, I'm just being very rational and focusing on the thing that we're arguing about. Why is she getting so upset? And, and meanwhile, the, the woman is actually paying attention to the relationship level and she's saying, you know, why is he being patronizing to me or why is he bossing me around or why is he not recognizing how much work I do in, in this household? You know, there's some underlying thing going on here that she's attentive to and the man's not and you get that imbalance. Now, one of the interesting things about that line of research is that it's not that men are hardwired, you know, to, in inverted commas, to only focus on the content level. Because actually when they're given an incentive to do so, they actually give the man money to pay attention to it. They can do it perfectly well. <laughs> it's just that they're not motivated to do it most of the time. And you see that in other contexts too. Often the person who's on the kind of wrong end of a power imbalance is the person who's really paying attention to that more emotional relationship level. And the person who's not is just kind of looking at the surface content level. Okay, so I think two takeaways so far we've gotten is that when you're in a conflict or a discussion that's conflicted, don't discount emotions, don't discount the relationships. You got to keep those two things in mind. It's not just about facts. And we'll talk about how some advice or I'm not going to call them techniques, but principles that uh, you can use to use your emotions in your relationships to make conflict more productive. But before we do... I think a lot of people have this feeling that you had looking at Twitter. I mean, they look at it and they're like, man, this this is just terrible. I get into these debates. No one changes their mind. Everyone's angry. This was not useful. This was not a productive use of time. And I think what you talked about, you know, that we don't always have a strong relationship or any relationship with the people we engage with online uh, is part of the reason for that. And then another thing you talk about in the book that I thought was really interesting and that, that I think can help us understand why online arguments are so unproductive is this idea of high context and low context. And online communication is primarily low context. Can, can you flesh that out for us? 
Yeah, it's, it's a distinction from anthropology. They talk about it in terms of countries and, and sort of global cultures, but actually you can apply it in, in all sorts of ways. But, but let me explain, explain it through that lens. So they would say these are two types of communication culture. A high-context communication culture is a, an example would be China or, or Japan. Usually kind of the Asian countries are more high-context. And what that means is the, con- the social context in which you're in does a lot of the talking for you. So a conversation around, you know, a boardroom table in Japan, you, you would find compared to, to a Western boardroom, there's there's less kind of verbalizing of, of people's opinions. People are really kind of express themselves much closer to, according to the roles that everybody has in the room. You don't have to say much. Everything is said obliquely and you don't really kind of have direct disagreements. That's seen as very kind of gauche and rude and disruptive. And that can work because everybody un- understands the context. Everybody has a very kind of deep immersion in the the kind of relatively homogenous culture of a Chinese boardroom. In a Western boardroom or Western office or, or any kind of like a Western context, you have much lower context culture because you have you you know more diverse groups of people from different cultural backgrounds, different belief systems, different religions, religions, just different kind of like ways of behaving and speaking thrown together, and everybody has to articulate what they're saying. They have that they have to kind of spell things out, right? When you don't have all that context guiding you in terms of what you can say, you actually have to be more kind of articulate, more verbal, and that leads to this situation where you've got everybody speaking their minds, right? And when everybody's speaking their minds, you're bound to have more clashes of opinion. And by the way, you know, nobody's saying high context is better than low context or vice versa. That's completely beside the point. These are just two ways of communicating. But the the low context way will give rise to more disagreements because you've got, yeah, as I say, lots of people speaking their minds and lots of people kind of talking across purposes because they have kind of different ways of understanding cultural norms. Now, this is a long-term trend, right? As societies become more diverse and people move to cities and all sorts of different people from different backgrounds uh, meet each other at work and so on. But it's been accelerated and amplified by the internet. Because if you think about it, the internet and social media is like the ultimate low-context culture. You're just you're, you're engaging with and talking to and seeing people. You have no idea who they are. And all you have to go on is are these words in a box, right? You, you have no kind of sense of, uh, uh, it's very hard to intuitively understand where people are coming from a lot of the time. And so no wonder you have this, uh, all these kind of disagreements. There's just so much kind of, you know, dry tinder there for, for things to explode into, in, into toxic conflict. Yeah. With low context online, people are typically just responding to the most recent thing. Yeah. And that just, it causes these flame wars because like they're ignoring or they don't have, uh, they're not privy to all the other communication, like the unspoken norms that might be in that online social group. I, mean, I think people see this like on, on Reddit or like you know, some internet forums where there might be a community there where people have been together talking to each other for a long time. So they kind of, they know each other. They have some sort of unspoken ground rules. Yeah. And then a new person comes in. Yeah. And that new person that you typically don't go through the archives and see what everyone's been talking about. You just throw something out there. And it's typically often inflammatory or it breaks this unspoken rule and everyone just gets upset by it. And then the person who did the initial bomb throwing is like, well, I don't know what the problem is. I just want to talk about this. And, exactly. and it's because it's low context. Like there, there's, it's a low context communication medium. 
Exactly. And so, you know, what that means is, well, first of all, it means social media is just always going to be hard for productive conflict, right? I don't think there's a kind of answer to that. I just think, in a sense, my uh, my suggestion to a lot of people is don't get into too many conflicts on social media or over email, whatever it is, or on Slack, you know, try where you can to tr- try and have your disagreements in person or over video where you can get more kind of s- a, a richer sense of, of the relationship channel, right? Your richer sense of the other person's background and context. Or, you know, where you are encountering people who are from a different kind of microculture, it doesn't have to be a completely different culture, but as you say, it can be just somebody coming into it to a forum where people have established norms and not understanding them. Help them understand it quickly, like get them up to speed on the rules. Don't just blame them for being rude or stupid and so on. Just say, look, this is, this is how we do things here. Tr- quickly try and establish some context where there is none. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. If you're sick and tired of traditional old workout gear, you need to check out Viore. With Viore Apparel, everything is designed to work out in, but doesn't look or feel like it. They're so comfortable, you'll want to wear them all the time. I've been rocking the Sunday Performance Shorts for a while now. They're my new favorite short. First off, they're super comfortable. They got a super soft knit fabric. It's got a nice pocket for your smartphone. You can work out in them. You can run in them. But what I also like about them, they look awesome. They look sharp. I can wear them when I'm out running errands. I wear them when I'm coaching flag football. I feel I can talk to the parents without looking like a schlub. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash AOM. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash AOM. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, you'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. order over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash AOM and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Check out the Sunday Performance Short. The discount offer is for new customers only. Hiring is challenging, especially right now when you have so much on your plate. Luckily, there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses can connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter does the work for you. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates up with your job. You can then easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply. Four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated hiring site based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of January 1st, 2022. And right now to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Okay, so you made this point, you know, when people see conflict, people who are conflict avoidant, they're like, I just don't, I want to opt out. I'm just going to avoid conflict as much as possible. But as you said earlier, when you do that, you miss out, you become stupider. And then there's also, you miss out on strengthening relationship through conflict. Let's talk about this idea that conflict can actually strengthen relationships. Because this seems counterintuitive. It's like, well, conflict's the thing that separates people. That's why people get divorced. All right, it's conflict about an issue. So how can conflict bring people closer together? It is counterintuitive and it's it kind of goes counter to our, our feelings about things because disagreement, direct uh, disagreement with people is a little bit stressful. It does put stress on the relationship. But I think about it in terms of exercise, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not necessarily 
enjoying myself when I go to the gym and I, I can feel uncomfortable and, and, and sometimes I'm in pain, but I, I go back every week or whatever it is because I know that actually the muscles grow back stronger and, and, and ultimately kind of, and the same, same with relationships. They need some kind of stress in order to grow back stronger. There's a really interesting line of research from the scientists who study marital relationships or, you know, long-term couples where, it, and, and, and in this field, it used to be thought the norm was that couples who argue a lot are the couples who, who split up because they'd looked at couples who split up and they said, did you argue a lot? And they said, yes. And I mean, actually, and they started doing more kind of sophisticated experiments of this. They got a different story. And what they do is, just briefly to explain, you know, the model of this research is they'll, they'll get couples into the lab and, and they'll say, you know, can you just discuss an issue of contention, a long running bone of contention in your relationship? Um, we'll leave the room, leave the camera on and you two just talk about it. And actually couples usually get into it pretty, pretty quickly and, and start talking and kind of forget that the camera's on. And and then they track the progress of that relationship over the coming weeks, months, and years. So these are kind of longitudinal studies. And what they have found, and this has really only become apparent over the last sort of 10 years or so, is that the couples who are quicker to rise to argument and, and have quite often quite kind of heated back and forths are the ones who are more likely to stay together over the long term and to be happier and to have solved the, the problems that they are discussing. So, number one, you know, I just think that's hilarious and and uh, and great. Uh, you know, some of my favourite couples are are the ones who just really have no hesitation in kind of getting into it and having a big row, but still love each other, right? I I, I think that's kind of really interesting. But also, you know, it begs the question: what what is that? What's going on there? And when I asked one of the psychologists who who run these studies runs these studies about that, she said, "Conflict is information." And what she meant by that was, when you're in an argument, you're really learning about what the other person really thinks and really feels, right? You're getting a little glimpse into their soul. The veil of politeness or just passivity is dropped. And you say, oh, right. Wow. I didn't realize you cared about that so much. Or that's that's what you think, is it? My goodness. Right. And in the moment, it can be quite uncomfortable and stressful, but you're updating your model of your partner. And it's a really important thing to do because if you don't do that, you have this stick with this model of your head of what your partner's like. You, th you think you know them really well. You know them better than they know themselves. Five, 10 years down the line, turns out they're completely different from the person you had in your head and the relationship comes to an end. So arguments and conflict are, are giving you information about what your partner is thinking and feeling. They're keeping you up to date on, on their emotions and, and ultimately bringing you close together. And that can showcase like how not arguing can cause relationships to go south because you have all those emotions kind of seething beneath the surface and there's a lot of resentment and then there might express itself in passive aggressiveness. Yeah. I mean, so the psychologists and, you know, organizational psychologists look at this as well, right? People who study workplaces and so on, that they will talk about how different kinds of aggression are productive in different ways, you know, depending on direct aggression versus indirect conflict and so on. The one form of conflict that nobody's found any benefits what, for whatsoever is passive aggression, right? Passive aggression comes to no good. It's corrosive. And it's what happens when disagreements and conflict aren't aired, right? The, the, the disagreement, the issue of contention does not disappear. It does not dissolve. 
into the ether. It it is merely swept under the carpet. It goes underground and it and it kind of corrodes the the the, the basis of of the relationship. And whether it's in a marriage or or, or in a workplace. You, you you should really be trying to, to to minimize that, and that means having your getting used to having your disagreements out in the open and not feeling like it is actually a huge, terrible, high stakes, dramatic thing. It's just the way we are. It's the way we do things. And I think a key to making these like having a row with some your spouse or a kid or someone at work is as long I think as is Gottman as long as you avoid contempt. Like that will be fine. Because like, as soon as you go into like, I think you're little, I think you're less than what you think you are, I'm going to call you names. That's not going anywhere. But if you can argue, passionately argue without going there, it'll be productive. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's that thing of, you know, trying to pay attention to both things at once, which is hard when when, when you're emotional and, and you're getting upset about something. But just keeping one part of your brain, which is like, what's going on with the underlying relationship here? Uh, are there things that I need him or her to know about what's going on? Okay, well, let's let's try and air those. But am I kind of pressing in areas that's just going to make them feel kind of small or to make them feel crushed that's that's not that's not good and that's you know that's not going to lead to a productive disagreement and it's not good for the relationship so uh, my advice is not to you know just have get it all out there and 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 scream and have terrible arguments it's more kind of you know uh, try and secure the the uh, good basis on which you can have a good relationship basis for you to have arguments that kind of stick to the thing that you're meant to be talking about all right, so conflict can bring us together because it's a medium through which we can gain more information about the person. Yeah, I mean, another a more blunt way of putting it is it's, it's how you learn the truth about the other right. person, right? It's when yeah. you speak truths to each other. Well, another benefit of conflict is it makes us smarter. And this, can, this again, this is counterintuitive because I think a lot of people, they get in debates online, like, I'm dumber. What was that? That's from Billy Madison. Like, we're all dumber from experiencing this uh, conversation. But you make this in counterintuitive case that even unreasonable unreasonable positions we take in a debate actually can make us smarter. How does that happen? Yeah. So it, it's often said that, oh, well, the problem with disagreement is that we're, we all have confirmation bias, you know, and we're all just motivated to make the argument that we're making. And that, and again, it kind of goes to, back to this thing of, and it just gets emotional and, and nobody's kind of thinking rationally. There's a grain of truth in that, but it's not the whole story. Because if you think about it, if you are really strongly motivated to make a case, there is some emotional motivation for you to, to, to make an argument. To a large extent, you're going to make a better argument because you're going to be working harder to think of, of more reasons why you're right, to, to pull up or to find information that, that supports your case and to look for weaknesses in the other person's argument. Right, emotion is is the great motivator, right? And when we're working hard at something, we're more likely to be to be good at it. So there is some benefit to to confirmation bias, to, to this feeling that I want to make this case because it's my case. You know, if you think about a disagreement where the parties involved, as soon as they hear a good counterpoint, they go, "Okay, yeah, yeah, right. You're probably right." W- what happens then? Right. Not much. I mean, the the, you know, the disagreement effectively comes to an end because everyone's just too kind of calm and rational and, and nice and goes, yeah, yeah, you probably got a point. Really good, productive, kind of insightful disagreements come from people who tend to be quite vigorously engaged in in in, in what they're 
arguing, I mean, who have some kind of incentive to really, to really make the case and to take it maybe a little bit too far sometimes. Now, of course, if you take it too far and you never back down, you're completely inflexible. That's not good either. So, but so, so we have to kind of be somewhere in the middle here. You have to kind of ride your biases, learn to ride them, you know, give them kind of some free reign, um, but don't let them control you. But, but don't shy away from, from, you know, having your heart in, in, in the disagreement as well as your head. Yeah. And you use uh, Socratic dialogue as a great example of uh, people being unreasonable, but allows you to get to a truth, right? You know, Socrates often engaged with these interlocutors who were just like, you could tell they were, they were just, they were digging in their heels. But through that process, you were able to get closer to, you know, tr- trying to figure out what justice is. That's right. And Socrates was actually good at he, he sort of underrated as an emotionally intelligent interlocutor. You know, he was good at kind of managing his interlocutor's responses. If you look at the dialogues, there are moments where he is effectively saying, hey, you know, there's no, you shouldn't get angry when I say this, but let me put it this way. And he's kind of calming them down. Because even in Athens at the time, argument was seen as this kind of zero-sum game of persuasion where you win or I win. I persuade you to do something or you persuade me to do something. And Socrates was very innovative when he came along and said, hey, look, it doesn't have to be like that. We, we, we can all be in this as a collaborative endeavor. What we're trying to get at here is truth, right? So it doesn't matter if I'm right. What matters is that we are right as a group. And the best way to get to truth is in discussion, right? So Socrates understood something that I think we've lost sight of to a certain extent, which is that intelligence is collaborative. It's it's interactive. We do our best thinking with other people. Even when we're thinking by ourselves, we, we do our thinking often because we've internalized other voices. You know, we've been reading or talking to people that disagree with us. And now we kind of ha- we play out the argument in our mind. We put so much emphasis especially recently with the advent of neuroscience and fMRI scanners, put so much emphasis on the individual brain. What's going on in the brain? What's the brain doing? That we forget that actually the process of reasoning and thinking and debate is a social one. Well, I think you just brought another point, this idea that with the, the sophists in Athens, their whole, their whole approach to dis- debate was someone has to win, winner take all. Yeah. I think a lot of people today, they have that approach to a conflict. Like there has to be a winner. And so with that mindset, our typical approach to debate is on, on persuasion. Like we read books on persuasion yeah. and how we can be more persuasive so we can show that this guy is wrong. I mean, this is just exactly like the, uh, the sophists. Like they use rhetoric, right, to, to win arguments and persuade people. And then Socrates comes along and says, it doesn't have to be that way. Like we don't have to, we don't have, to have debate or discussion like that. There has, doesn't have to be a winner. We can just have this conversation, this conflict, and hopefully get a little bit closer to the truth. So I guess, I mean, one takeaway too is just be more like Socrates and less like the sophists. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's why he didn't write anything down. You know, obviously writing has been a net boon for us as a civilization, but uh, when he was around, it was a relatively new, new technology. It was like, you know, I don't know, the iPhone or something like that. You know, you kind of take it or leave it. And he, he didn't like it. And the reason he didn't like it is that it couldn't talk back to him. You know, you write something down on a page and it just kind of sits there. He really liked the idea that when you, you put a proposition forward, somebody comes back and tries to knock it down. And you, you you say, well, yeah, I disagree, but I see I see your point here. And you move the conversation on and the, the, kind of, the thing kind of unfolds. Um, but yeah, he had to he was really introducing the whole idea of an intellectual inquiry to, to, to Western civilization. That's what made him such a kind of great 
figure up until then, as you say, the process of reasoning and debate was really about who wins, uh, who's going to come off best here in this battle of wits. And Socrates, his point was, no, actually, we can use our reasoning for, for this other thing, which is getting to the, to the truth together, acting collaboratively. All right. So knowing that conflict, there's an emotional element that we, I mean, if we try to take it away, that's probably futile, but it also, we also make our debate less potent. And then also knowing that conflict is about relationships. I want to talk about some of the, the advice that you picked up based on research and talking to experts on how you can have more productive conflict by taking these two factors in mind. So this idea, in order to have a productive conflict with somebody, you have to have this relationship with trust where you can vigorously argue and disagree without harming the relationship. Like, how do you establish that trust? And how do you allow, how do you prevent the, the debate from harming the relationship in the process? Yeah. So there's many different answers to that, many different kind of ways of, of thinking about it. I talk about this principle of first connect. Often the reason that uh, a debate or a disagreement goes wrong is that we get to the disagreement too quickly. We kind of go directly at it before we've really settled the relationship. And you kind of got to do that first before you get in there. As you know, for the book, I talked to people who have really tough conversations under very extreme conditions. So I talked to hostage negotiators and terrorist interrogators and divorce mediators, therapists, all sorts of things. And this, you know, they all do it in, in in different ways, but this was the theme. The people who were really skilled at those jobs, what they're really skilled at is settling the relationship level before you get into the really tough part. So a hostage negotiator does not pick up the phone and say, right, how are we going to get you down from this roof or how are we going to get the, the hostages out, out of this situation? They are trained. The, the good ones spend a few minutes going, Okay, look, I just want to say thanks for for doing such a good job here. You've you've stayed calm, and we, we all appreciate that. You know, you have the right intentions. You know, and whatever they can do to settle that person down, to make them feel a little bit more secure, so in in the relationship that that they they have with you, that's going to be good for when you get into the actual negotiation right? But, but p- people are not going to be able to have a good disagreement with you if they're feeling insecure, threatened. That's when they shut down or they get really, really aggressive. Same with interrogators. You know, I know you've had Lawrence Allison on, on the show. He's a, a, a brilliant academic who trains terrorist interrogators in Britain and, and around the world. And one of the things he says is that bad interrogators are the ones who walk into the room and say, right, you need to tell me what you know, right? That's, that's going to shut the person down, right? In a sense, you're playing into their hands, that they're prepared for that situation. They just say, okay, well, I'm not going to say anything. The really skillful interrogators make a big deal out of the the fact that you don't have to speak, you know, depends what your legal regime is, but, but, you know, they'll say, you have the right not to say anything. You have the right to a lawyer. And the fact is, I can't tell you what to do. They can't tell you what, nobody here can tell you what to do. It's up to you. But listen, I really want to hear your story because I'm really interested. And you have to be genuinely interested, by the way. You, you can't fake it. But, you know, nine times out of ten, when they do that, the person opens up. These hardened terrorists who've been trained for this kind of situation, they really want to tell their story. And, and, and your job is to, first of all, establish a relationship of trust. And second of all, 
let them feel like it's their choice to speak. And, and once you do that, you know, you, people will, will open up. So it's a kind of long answer to your question, but there's several different things going on here. Yeah. I think Lawrence, he calls it, you know, when you're in a conflicted debate or discussion with somebody, you have to let go of the rope and not, yeah. not try to control the person what they think or feel. Yeah. So, you know, probably the most frequent problem with a disagreement is that it turns into a power struggle of some kind, whether an overt one or, or a covert one. Well, people are kind of trying to establish their dominance, obviously or subtly, in the conversation. And if you wanted to go well, you've got to, to do everything you can to stop that from, from happening. So as soon as you feel the rope, you know, tauten into a kind of tug of war, Lawrence's suggestion is, you know, let go of it. And often terrorists or criminals who are being interrogated and who, and who are used to it and are prepared for it, they will try and turn it into a tug of war. So they'll do kind of disruptive things, you know, they'll put their feet on the desk. And, and your instinct as an interrogator, as a police officer or whatever, is to say, get your feet off the desk. No, I don't want to. Get your feet off the desk. No, I don't want to. And it's just a, you know, it's a futile, pointless diversion from the thing that you're, you're, you're meant to be doing. And Lawrence's suggestion in that type of situation is, yeah, if you want your feet on the desk, that's fine. Well, another point that Lawrence makes is that even when someone is saying something that you disagree with strongly or it just doesn't make sense to you, instead of just dismissing them right away, what you want to do is approach them with a kind of intellectual empathy, like where, where you take a step back and try to figure out what's going on in their head and like why they care about something the way they do and why they think, you know, why they're thinking the way they're thinking. Because even when someone's position seems just irrational on the face, if you listen to them, there is sort of a rationality going on to what they're thinking. Exactly right. And, and you know, you see this with your, with your kids, actually, you know, so you, you, you could be very emotional about something and it seems completely trivial to you. And your temptation is to say, oh, don't be so stupid. Why would you get upset about that thing? Often there's some deeper reason that they're getting upset about it. It's connected to some thing they really do feel deeply about that, that does make sense but you can only get there by by taking their initial point of view kind of seriously, saying, "Yeah, tell." Well, well, I can see you're really upset about that, and you know, I want to hear more about it. Because, as you say, the the thing that appears irrational might conceal some sort of deeper rational objection, deeper disagreement that actually kind of you know is interesting and is worth um, discussing. But you can only get there if you, if you are genuinely interested in 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 why that person is thinking like that and feeling like that. And then when you do that, you're establishing that trust and it opens up the person to your point of view, possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it becomes a kind of virtuous cycle. So yeah, I, I think when you're, when you're really stuck in a disagreement, you think, well, how can we even find any common ground here? Then just switching into curiosity mode and saying, you know, okay, I, I can at least be interested in how they got there. Is, it, it, it can get you into that, that better kind of virtuous cycle. Yeah, it sounds like what you're doing is making the communication more high context, right? You're you're making unspoken things explicit. That's a great way of putting it. And you know, I, I talked about high context cultures and low context cultures in terms of China versus the US, the West versus the East. But look, the, every every conversation is a little culture. You know, we, we we you and me are we have a little microculture between us, you know, an agreed and unspoken kind of background set of norms about you know what what what's acceptable and what's not what's interesting and what's not interesting and so 
your job in a conversation that's a difficult conversation, I think, is is to try and help the other person understand your culture and to try and understand their culture. You know, and it doesn't have to just mean, you know, they're a Christian and I'm a Muslim or whatever. It just means how's this person's well, how are they used to thinking and talking? And how is it different from me? And how can we kind of move a little closer together there? Another thing you talk about in the book is establishing boundaries for a conflict that make them more productive. And this isn't, a, you know, using Robert's rules of order, right? But it is sort of having like a loose framework. What can that framework look like? And how do you get people to agree on the the boundaries of a discussion or a, a conflict? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the point about setting boundaries is that they can be very, very simple. In fact, one of the most simple ones is just, no hostility. So actually, here's a, here's a kind of good real world example. Um, you mentioned Reddit earlier. There's a great kind of subreddit called Change My View, which set up a few years ago, and I, I, and I talk about it in the book. And the point to Change My View is, yeah, you, you, it's what, what it says on the tin, really. You, you go along and you say, look, here's a th- something I've been thinking about. Here is my view on you know, feminism, whatever it is. What, what do you think? And, I, and I'm willing to be talked out of it. And amazingly, this this seemingly kind of like this thing, which is so antithetical to the spirit of social media, has actually been very successful and been hundreds of thousands of of users. And they just have a few very simple rules, and then they kind of closely monitor. They have a set of quite a few moderators who monitor the debates and make sure these rules are followed. And they also incentivize the people who follow them. They, they kind of give them badges, so they're kind of gamifier as well. But the rules are very simple, and and one of them is you know just. Don't be hostile. Don't basically don't be a dick, right? You'd be amazed how far that one goes. Another one is don't just repeat the same arguments over and over again, right? If 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 somebody has come back with a counterpoint, you have to address their counterpoint. Just kind of don't stick to to where you are. And if you do that, you're you're breaking the rules. And just being explicit about the rules up top is something we just don't do very much. You do it if you can do it at work, right? It actually can go a, a long way. Say at work, you know, in this workplace, we really value open disagreement, so we want people to do it. A and B. Here's a few guidelines, rules, whatever you want to call them, to make it go better. And this is this is our this is how we do things at our company. You know, hardly ever happens, but um, but you know, sometimes really good companies like Netflix. That's how that's how they operate, right? They put a great emphasis on on open disagreement, and they set those principles out very clearly, and it goes a long way. Well, we've talked about some some techniques. I, I don't like calling them techniques; they're principles. I'm gonna, I like I like principles is yeah. the better because I think technique is too life hacky. Yeah, and I, don't, I agree. And a discussion or debates are really fluid and complex. But, but like, what's one thing that people can start doing today to have more productive conflict? Is there like one thing that you found in all your research that provides a real big bang for your buck? Well, I, I think as a kind of general, the, 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 as you say, right, there isn't like a hack that you can apply to everywhere. There are principles. And I think probably the most important principle is to try and make the other person feel good about agreeing with you, you know, and actually, you know, lower the stakes for them in terms of, of coming around to your point of view. And that ultimately, that means making them feel secure, making them feel respected, Making them sure, you know, making sure that they feel that you like them and so on. If they don't feel any of those things, they are never going to have a productive disagreement with you. So, kind of keep your eye on how the other person is feeling. The more relaxed, the more comfortable in themselves they're feeling, 
the, the more likely they are to get into a good disagreement with you. Well, Ian, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Sure. I mean, so the book is called Conflicted. So you can just Google my name and Conflicted and it'll come up. Go to my website, which is ian-leslie.com. And I'm on Twitter for my sins at <laughs> Mr. Ian Leslie. So you can come and see me there and watch me failing to follow any of the principles that I've just laid out and getting into terrible disagreements online. Well, Ian, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. Really enjoyed it. My guest today was Ian Leslie. He's the author of the book, Conflicted. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, ian-leslie.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash conflict, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member if you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on list the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu.